We are currently studying verse 13 of Romans 8. And as we did this morning, I'd like to begin reading at the beginning of the paragraph in verse 12. So uh, Romans 8, beginning in verse 12. Our focus is on verse 13. We'll read these two verses. And this is the Word of God. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This morning we began unpacking verse 13 by asking three questions, six in all. Uh, but three that we looked at this morning. Question one was this, what is meant by life and death in this verse? And we saw that life and death in verse 13 refers to eternal life in heaven and eternal death in hell. So that's what's at stake in this verse. Our eternal destinies are at stake. If you live according to the flesh, you will go to hell. And if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will go to heaven. And so immediately our attention should be gripped by this verse. This is is not a small issue. This is Mount Everest kind of issue that we're dealing with. The second question was, does this verse teach a works salvation? And at first hearing, we admitted that it kind of of sounds as if Paul might be saying that we are saved by works, that you earn your salvation by sin killing. But we saw this morning that that does not fit with the context of the rest of the Bible. It does not fit with the context of the book of Romans and all that Paul has emphasized in this letter about salvation being by faith alone, apart from works, that we are justified, made right with God, not by anything that we do, but by trusting on Christ who has done everything for us. And we also saw that verse 13 itself won't let us talk of salvation by works. Because trying to earn your own salvation is living according to the flesh. And verse 13 says that those who live according to the flesh will die. The way we are to kill sin is not in our own strength, not meriting our own salvation. We are to kill sin by the Spirit, and that means by faith in Jesus Christ. Our good work of sin killing is a fruit produced in us by the Spirit as we trust in Jesus. Let me say that again. Our good work of sin killing is a fruit produced in us by the Spirit as we trust in Jesus. Faith must come first, and faith is what saves, but if you're truly saved, you will kill sin in your life. This is true of every Christian. We are not saved by faith and works, but we are saved by a faith that does work, and it will work in us a heart that longs to be rid of sin. So heaven and hell are at stake, This is not salvation by works. The third question was this, okay? Then what does it mean to live according to the flesh? If if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Then it's incumbent upon us to know what that means to live according to the flesh. Because we don't want to die. And we saw 
that to live according to the flesh is to have one's mind set on the flesh, the stuff of this world, stuff that might be against God or just stuff disconnected from God. We saw that to live according to the flesh is to have one's mind preoccupied with the stuff of this world. It's to make peace with sin, to do one's own will instead of God's will, to refuse to submit to God. And if we live that way, we will die. Even those who profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if they live this way, they will have their profession proven false. People today who appear to be very real believers in Christ, if they do not fight sin, but just allow it to have its way in their lives, they will one day fall away from Christ and reveal that they were never truly one of His sheep. And so the appeal that should have come across through the message this morning was this one. Don't live according to the flesh. Resist the flesh. Practice self-control. In a sense, the first part of verse 13 is defensive. Don't let your flesh control you. Control yourself. Now, our next three questions are about the second half of the verse, the offensive portion. Not only are you to practice defense, don't let your flesh control you, but you're also to practice offense. You attack the flesh. You wage war against your own flesh. Paul puts it this way. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So question number four is where we pick up tonight, and here it is. What are the deeds of the body that must be put to death? Because we don't want to attack the wrong thing. Romans 8.13 is a call to war, but we don't want to kill civilians. We want to kill the enemy. We have our assassin's sniper rifle out and we are using our scope and we're narrowing in on our target. But before we pull the trigger, let's be sure we're aiming at the right thing. So what are the deeds of the body that Paul is talking about that we're to put to death? The answer is this. The deeds of the body are those thoughts, those words, those actions of the body that are contrary to purity, and to righteousness. In fact, they are what Paul calls the works of the flesh in Galatians 5. And in Galatians 5, he gives us a list of examples. And that helps. Sometimes the the, the best way to understand something is through examples. And so turn with me to Galatians 5 very quickly so that you can see a list. It's not an exhaustive list. But it is a list that illustrates for us the kind of of deeds of the body that we're to be narrowing in on with our sniper rifle. The kinds of deeds of the body that we're to be putting to death. We know we're to be targeting certain behaviors, deeds, right? Deeds are, are actions, deeds are behaviors. And we can assume that we're to be attacking sinful behaviors, ungodly behaviors, And so we say to Paul, tell us more. Help us know precisely what are we to be ridding ourselves of? What are the weeds in the garden of our souls that we're to be pulling out? Galatians 5, beginning in verse 19. Galatians 5, verse 19. 
Now the works of the flesh are evident. Meaning, you already know this. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so we have here a list of examples of works of the flesh, deeds of the body, as he calls them in Romans 8. Note three things about this list. First, notice, as I mentioned a while ago, that the list is not exhaustive, because at the end of the list, Paul adds the words, and things like these. So he makes clear, this is just a few examples. This is not the full list. Second, notice that his list includes both inward and outward behaviors. In other words, Paul isn't just saying, make sure you target external actions like sorcery or fits of anger or drunkenness. But he says, also target those internal acts of your soul, lust, envy. In fact, every sin mentioned in this list can be expressed outwardly, but has its roots in the heart. Every sin that he mentions here begins inwardly and only later is expressed outwardly if it's not put to death. This is important because it tells us that the way we kill the deeds of the body is by doing work in our heart. Killing sin in your life is heart work. It's hard work, but hear me, it's heart work. It is work you do in your soul. Uh, You don't normally fight sin by actually plucking out your eye or by cutting off your hands. Jesus was using metaphors there. Okay, There are times when you will affect yourself physically to fight sin, fasting, Fasting is a way to help teach yourself self-control, and that can help you in your fight against sin. But most of the time, the radical action that needs to be taken to kill sin in your life is not an outward physical action. It's an inward action. It is casting down the idols that you have set up in your heart. Third, notice that in this list, as in Romans 8, Paul makes clear that those who live in these sins will not go to heaven. Uh, People who live in immorality, not fighting sin, have no reason to believe themselves Christians. Paul says, I tell you as I told you before, if you live this way, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, so turn back to Romans 8. We now have a picture of what Paul has in mind when he speaks of putting to death the deeds of the body. I wanted to make just one more point underneath this question 4, and it's this. You and I are to target our own sins. Romans 8.13 is not telling you to kill your brother's sins. Romans 8.13 is not telling you to narrow in your sniper rifle on your sister's sins. It is not teaching us to go to war against the deeds that other people are committing. Certainly there is a time for exposing the works of darkness. And certainly there is a time for admonishing a brother or sister in love. 
But there is only one person in the world whose sins ought ultimately to occupy my attention, and that's my own. I should never, ever, ever be more aware of other people's sins than I am of my own. God has called me to deal with my sins. God has called you to deal with yours. It is because I am more intimately familiar with my own sin than with anybody else's in this room that I can call myself the chief of sinners because I've walked through the arena of my sins and I've seen their ghastliness. And you should be able to even say of yourself, I feel that I am the chief of sinners because you know your sin more than you know the sins of any other person in the world. And we're not to be depressed by this knowledge. We have the gospel, right? We have the Lord Jesus Christ. But I must be careful that I never get so caught up trying to get the speck out of my brother's eye that I miss the first and the main thing, which is to get the plank out of my own. It is our own sins, it is our own sinful tendencies that we are to target and to kill as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Question five. Question five. Okay, if we have an idea of what the deeds of the body are, what does it really mean to put them to death? Because that's the language Paul uses. Put to death the deeds of the body and you will live. So what does it mean to put to death the deeds of the body? And on this I can do no better than John Owen. So listen to what John Owen says. He says, this is a metaphorical expression taken from putting of any living thing to death. To kill a man or any other living thing is to take away the principle of all its strength, its vigor, and its power so that he cannot act or exert or put forth any proper actings of his own. And so it is in this case. Your indwelling sin is compared to a person, a living person called the old man, with his faculties and properties, his wisdom, craft, subtlety, strength. And this, says the apostle, must be killed, put to death, mortified. That is, it must have its power, life, vigor, and strength to produce its effects taken away by the Spirit. So what we're talking about here is mortifications. Everybody say mortification. Remember, we are not using that word in the sense of being embarrassed, right? Today, people, when they're embarrassed, they say, oh, I was mortified, right? It means I blushed, right? I didn't, I didn't want others to see me. Um, the word mortification in its older usage means to kill something. To mortify something is to take its life away and to destroy it. Let me mention two ways that we are to mortify, put to death sin in our lives, The first is death by weakening. Death by weakening. And the idea is that you try to so weaken the sinful desires within you that they no longer have the strength to pull on you. Listen to James 1 speak this way. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings death. So if you can weaken your sinful desires, take away their strength, then you will be saved from many, many sins. We don't want to feed our sinful desires. We want to weaken them. You see, every time you give in to a sinful desire, you strengthen its power. 
the sin will have more pull the next time. And even more the next time until sin becomes a full-blown addiction. We want to do the opposite of this. We want to take sin's strength away. Have you ever noticed how putting ourselves in the company of certain people or certain environments seems to strengthen a certain sinful desire within us? You ever notice that? Right? There are certain places, certain people you can be around that when you're around them, suddenly you're more willing to do sinful things than you would be otherwise. Conversely, you may have found that in other environments and around other kinds of people, you find sinful desires within you squelched. So one way to start mortifying sin is to do everything you can to weaken these sinful desires, to starve them of their strength and their power, to make decisions that will make giving in to sin more difficult and not easy. This should be happening in us every single day. Every day we should be seeking to weaken our flesh and to grow in our spiritual strength and our spiritual stamina. 2 Corinthians 4.16 We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. I love Owen's illustration here, so listen to this. He says, When a man is nailed to a cross, he at first struggles and he strives and he cries out with great strength and might. But as his blood and his spirit wastes away, his strivings become faint and seldom. His cries become low and hoarse and scarce to be heard. In the same way, when a man first determines to conquer a lust or a sin, and he deals with it in earnest, that sinful desire struggles with great violence to break loose. It cries with earnestness and impatience to be satisfied and relieved. But by mortification, the blood and spirits of it are let out. It moves seldom and faintly. It cries sparingly. It is scarce heard in the heart. It may sometimes have a dying pang that makes an appearance of great vigor and strength, but it's quickly over, especially if it is kept from considerable success. So you see, one of the best ways to put sin to death in your life is to starve your sinful desires. Don't feed them. The more you feed your sinful desires, the more you give into them, the stronger they will be. But the more you say no, the more you say no, the more you deny them, the more they shrivel up inside of you. A second way of killing the deeds of the body is by attack. By attack. Instead of keeping the enemy shut up with no food or drink, weakening him until he dies... This method comes out in an all-out attack against sin. This is, this is the guns blazing approach. How do you do this? By going on the offensive through submission and obedience to God. There is nothing that I know of that has a more direct impact on killing sin in your life than by growing and doing the opposite of that sin. The greatest way to kill greed is to be generous and to cultivate generosity. The greatest weapon you have against a loose tongue is by actively, intentionally, willfully keeping your mouth closed, teaching yourself to do that, going on the attack against that sin. I am going to grow in the self-control of my tongue. 
The greatest weapon against pride is humility. The greatest weapon against hatred is love. The greatest weapon against bitterness is forgiveness. The best way to go on the offensive against a sin is to intentionally do the opposite. As much and as hard as you can. More than any other passage, I think Romans 6, verses 12 through 14, give us the best commentary on what Paul is really teaching us in Romans 8, 13. And back when we were in Romans 6, 12 through 14, we saw there that Paul not only gives us a solid defense against sinful desires, namely self-denial, self-control, but he also gives us a solid offense. And his offensive strategy that he taught us there was this. Submit your members to God. That is, give every part of you to the service of God. Give your lips to prayer and to worship and to encouragement and to admonishment. Give your mind to considering those things which are above and to striving for excellence in your callings. Give your hands and your feet to serving others. Grow every day in submitting all that you are to God. This is the great sin killer. Happy submission to God is to sin, what raid is to roaches, and what arsenic is to rats. The best way to squelch sinful desires and to conquer them is through a greater joy, the joy of actively, intentionally submitting to God and obeying Him throughout your day. You ever notice that sinful desires often seem far away when you're in the midst of earnestly praying for a missionary? Or when you're in the midst of caring for somebody who is in need? When you're visiting the sick? When you're, when you're reading the Bible and really trying to understand it? When your heart and your energy and your emotion is tied up in actively obeying God? You're killing sin. You're starving it of its power. This is why Paul in Colossians 3 uh, writes one paragraph that begins this way. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly within you. So does that sound familiar with what we've been reading? Right? Put to death, therefore, what is earthly within you. And he spends the rest of the paragraph giving more examples of the kinds of sin that we should be killing. But then in the very next paragraph, he goes on and says this. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved... And he goes on and he spends the rest of the next paragraph explaining the positive things that we should be putting on. The positive things that we should be pursuing. It is in the pursuit of the virtues that vices are often killed. In other words, one great method of mortification, killing sin, is vivification. All right, you ready for that one? Everybody say vivification. Yeah, it's a hard word, isn't it? Vivification, right? If mortification is putting something to death, vivification is giving something life. And the idea is, if you want to kill sin in your life, you start giving life to love and to patience and to gentleness and to all that is positive, okay? Um, Mortify your sins by vivifying those attitudes, words, and behaviors that are godly. So how do we kill the deeds of the body? The New Testament seems to give us at least two ways. Death by weakening and death by attack. So if that's our method, question six, then what is meant by the words, by the Spirit? Do you see those three words in verse 13? We are to, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body. What does that mean? 
I want to make one statement about what that does not mean and then give you three statements about what that does mean. So first, what it does not mean. Those three words, by the Spirit, do not mean that we use the Spirit as an instrument in our hands. In other words, it's not as if the Spirit is a soldier who works for you and you tell Him where to go and what sin to attack and He attacks it. We do not wield the Spirit. He is not a tool. The Spirit is not an instrument that we use. The Spirit is God Himself. The Holy Spirit is the Almighty. He is the truly independent one, the self-existent one, the self-sustaining one. He gives us life and breath, and we live under His power, never Him under ours. The Spirit wields us. We do not wield Him. If you get this wrong, you commit blasphemy. By the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body does not mean that He is an instrument in your hands that you use. You are one of the bricks that He is working on, shaping you to be a part of the great temple that He is building. Christ is building a temple for His Father by the Spirit. You and I are the raw materials. The brick does not wield the mason. The mason wields the brick. Okay? So the Spirit is at work in us and through us, not the other way around. So then what does Paul mean when he says, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body? Three answers. First, this means we are to kill sin by the Spirit's power. In other words, we don't seek to weaken sinful desires in our life and to attack sinful desire in our lives with our own resources, in our own strength. No, we do all of this by trusting in Christ, by living in the joy of the gospel, by believing what the Bible has promised to us and living in that reality. The Bible says we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. The Bible says that God is working all for our good and that we're never going to be forsaken and that we're going to heaven. And the Spirit uses these promises to give us the strength we need to fight. We're able to approach the Goliath of that sin we've been fighting with joy and with confidence. Why? Because we know the God we serve and we know what that God has promised to us. We know the end of the battle. You see, to kill sin by the Spirit means to kill sin by the Spirit's power which comes to us through faith. It is as we believe the glorious truths of the Bible that the Spirit gives us the will, the joy, the strength we need to fight hard and to fight well. Because it's not as if this battle against your sin is uncertain. We kill sin with the strength that comes from knowing that Christ is within us and that He is going to slay every evil desire within us. It may not be today, it may not be tomorrow, but we do know how this war ends In fact, the fatal blow has already been delivered. Moreover, we know that He who is within us is stronger than our flesh. We also know that He is able to give to us everything we need. There is no temptation too strong for us when Christ is on our side. And so we're to believe these things. And in the power that comes to us by believing these things, we fight against sin. Listen to Owen again. He says, I say then, 
we must by faith consider the supply and the fullness that we have in Christ Jesus and how He can at any time give strength and deliverance. If you do not immediately find success in your battle, you will at least be secure in your chariot and you will not flee from the field while the conflict ensues. You will be kept from utter discouragement and from lying down in unbelief and from turning aside to false means and remedies that cannot help you in the end. The effectiveness of this consideration will only be found out in actual practice. In other words, it doesn't matter how often the Bible or John Owen or I stand here and tell you that walking with faith in light of the gospel makes all the difference. He says you really just have to learn it from experience. You really have to learn this for yourself. The difference the gospel makes in fighting sin. And so I wonder, have you ever experienced this in your life? Have you ever noticed that when your heart and your mind is full of the promises of Christ and all that He is for you, that those are the moments when sin has the weakest pull on you? Temptations to sin are small when Christ is near. It is only when the promises of Christ are far from our hearts and far from our minds when we're not thinking about biblical realities, when we're not thinking about God, we're not thinking about Christ, we're not thinking about salvation, we're not thinking about heaven, all we're thinking about is how crummy the day's been. That's when sin is near. Right? Learn to live in the reality of the gospel. To set your mind on things above. To believe what the Bible says about you. That's where you find the strength to fight sin. So our first answer is this. We put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit when we are being empowered by the Spirit by holding fast to the promises of Christ. Answer number two is this. We put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit when we make use of prayer. Of prayer. Because you see, we do not wield the Spirit. The Spirit does not take orders from us, but we can always go to our Father. And we can pour out our hearts to our Father. And we can humbly ask our Father to give us victories against sin. We can plead with Him to give us more grace, to give us more strength, to give us more wisdom for the fight. We can wrestle with God in prayer, refusing to let Him go until He blesses us with, with more purity, more, a greater sense of His worth, a greater sense of the heinousness of sin, a greater sense of the wonders of His love for us. We, we pray for these things, we wrestle through these things, and then the Father who loves us through Jesus, through the Spirit, blesses us with an answer. Christ is the mediator between God and man. When God wishes to give us something, He gives it to us through Christ. And Christ gives it to us through the Spirit. And therefore, when you want the Spirit to do something in your life, when you want the Spirit to make you more holy, when you want the Spirit to make you more patient, more gentle, when you want the Spirit to to help you have a greater sense of God's love for you so that that sin doesn't pull on you anymore, what do you do? You pray. Father, I don't control the Spirit, but the Spirit does what you will. Father, would you please will that I would be more patient? Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Finally, answer number three. We put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit 
when we make use of the means of grace. So here's the idea. The Spirit is the one that is making you holy. The Spirit is the one within you who is cultivating faith, hope, and love. But the Spirit does not do that unilaterally, directly, without any tools. No. The Spirit uses tools. The Spirit uses means in your life to make you holy. He doesn't have to. But that's how God has ordained it to be. The Spirit doesn't just come upon your soul and do violence to your will. He doesn't just suddenly zap you and make you patient. That's not how it works. He doesn't come and pronounce a magic spell or anything like that. Rather, the Holy Spirit uses real means to affect us and to influence us. He uses other people, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. He uses the church. He uses the Word of God. He uses prayer. He uses trials and tribulations and ups and downs. The Spirit uses means to help us grow in holiness. Now what that means is this. If you want to kill sin in your life, if you want to join the Spirit and grow it in holiness, you make use of those means. You make use of the Bible. You make use of your brothers and sisters in Christ. And when I say make use of your brothers and sisters in Christ, what I mean is don't just eat the fried chicken together and talk about football, right? I mean have real conversations about important things where you can point each other to the Word. Use intercessory prayer for one another. You be praying for you and you be praying for you so that the Spirit will be working through that to sanctify you. Use the Word of God, both in your own reading and through singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and by engaging with the sermons and and in the Sunday school classes. You understand, don't you, that you can sit in a Sunday school class and hear somebody teach a lesson and not gain anything because you were distracted, you were uninterested, you didn't care. And then there's a way to sit in a Sunday school class and hear that very same lesson and be engaged, and the Spirit will be at work in your life to make a real difference. So you can either resist the Spirit's work or you can walk in step with the Spirit. You can fight the Spirit or you can walk with Him in this work. To resist Him would be to make His work harder by making decisions that oppose Him. But to walk with Him would be to embrace the means of grace, to receive them with faith, praying as you do that the Spirit will bless them and bless you. All right, so next, not next Sunday, Next Sunday is a, um, a Lord's Supper Sunday, and we'll do prayer service next Sunday night. So two weeks from now, we're going to come back to this verse, because today has been very much on the theological level. What is Paul actually saying? I want to get very specific, and I want to get very practical about what this actually looks like in your life and my life as we pursue holiness. But tonight, let's close this way. Number one, trust Christ and live in the joy of who you are in Him. Be a gospel person. Find all your strength, all your contentment, all your peace in Christ, who is the lover of your soul. Number two, fight sin in your life through prayer. Take your every battle to God in prayer. Plead with Him to give you victory in the fight. 
And the third, use the means of grace. Be in the Word. Be in church. Pursue Christian fellowship. Embrace your trials and learn the lessons that God is teaching you in them. Let them have a gracious effect on your life. One day we will be in heaven and we will be holy. And we will look back on our lives and we will see how God, Father, Son, and Spirit worked not only to declare us righteous, but to make us righteous. And ours will be the joy and God's will be the glory forever and ever. Amen? Amen. May God make this so. Let's pray.